make sure to watch The Ringer's new live reaction show, Talk the Thrones. Each week, Andy Greenwald, Chris Ryan, Mother of Dragons, Mallory Rubin, and my friend and yours, our very own maester, Jason Concepcion, are coming to you live after the East Coast airings of Game of Thrones Season 7. Talk the Thrones will stream exclusively on Twitter and Periscope right after each episode ends and can be found on The Ringer's Twitter handle, at Ringer. Andy, Chris, Mallory, and Jason will be reacting at the same time as you, contextualizing the events and explaining everything that just unfolded. Again, the show is called Talk the Thrones, and you can stream it live after the East Coast airings of Game of Thrones Season 7 on our Twitter and Periscope, at Ringer. Welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's official video game podcast, and only video game podcast. We are part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I am here with my colleague, staff writer for the Ringer, Benjamin Lindbergh. My name is Jason Concepcion. I'm also a staff writer for the Ringer. We're here to talk about video games. We sure are. Thanks for welcoming me. I feel welcome. I, I hope so. There shall be no other video game podcast than this. That's it. At the Ringer. We're just... There can be some others on the internet. Yeah, that's it. That's where we're, <laughs> we are the podcast that was promised. And today we're going to talk about, a, I think, one of the most original games I've played in a while. Yeah. Uh, Pyre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're doing a, a bottle episode. This is all about yeah. Pyre, which does not mean that you have to have played Pyre. I know it's only been out for a few days. We're not going to spoil anything about the plot, just the basic setup and the mechanics and how it's made. We both played it for PS4, yep. but you can get it on PC as well. So we're going to talk to two people from Supergiant Games, the studio that developed Pyre. They also developed Bastion and Transistor, two other really excellent and original games. So we're going to talk to Greg Kasavin, who is the writer and designer there, the creative lead, and also Darren Korb, who has done the soundtracks to all of their games, and they are fantastic. So we'll get to them in just a minute. Should we set up the basic background for Pyre for a sure. second here? Do you want to lay out the oh, premise briefly? <laughs> the, okay, so the premise is you play as a character in this kind of i guess is it a post-apocalyptic landscape where yeah you're an exile trapped in this kind of in a prison essentially you meet mm-hmm. your other your fellow prisoners and you their characters develop over time and yeah. the game within that game is you have to play in these things called rights which are essentially a combat simulator and they they help you rank up help your friends rank up and they mm-hmm kind of allow you to decide who can leave this prison. Right. And it's shockingly deep. The gameplay is shockingly deep. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. I've seen it described as basketball. I've seen it described as dodgeball with RPG elements. It's like it's three on three. You are controlling this protagonist character named the reader. Reading has been banned, which seems to be a common element in the post-apocalyptic world. So you are controlling three members of a team. It's this three on three. You, You fight in a fairly small arena. And the goal is to carry this crystal into a pyre, a burning fire, and extinguish it with the crystal. And so 
you have to pass back and forth. Each character has different attributes and abilities, and you can enhance those with talismans that you can equip and upgrade so that you can go faster or jump farther or, or have certain other traits added to your character. And yeah, at first it's easy and they ease you into it and you'll win a lot, but then it ramps up and it gets more challenging and it gets more deep and yeah. there's a ton of strategy to it. And there's also an interesting element where you never get a game over screen. Even if you lose in one of these competitions, these rights, the game goes on and there are some story ramifications to that. And because you get attached to the players, you feel bad about losing, but it's not as if the game ever comes to a halt which is nice and unusual for a narrative. And it's really like it produced some moments that compare in intensity for me to something like Rocket League, where you're just like white knuckling the controller. And it's just because sometimes these matches are really quick and someone will just run from one side to the other and dunk on the pyre and that will be that. (laughs) But at other times it can be this stalemate where like a round will go on for for minutes and no one can get the crystal in there and it, it becomes this like perimeter game you could toss the crystal into the pyre too so there's just a lot to it and that's only part of the game yeah the thing that takes and that if the game was just that alone that would be Mm -hmm. good like that as a mobile game would be great what takes it to the next level is the way the developers worked in the character development to be part of the combat gameplay like it 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 influences it in certain ways you have to make these choices between characters and 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 it's just really good. It's a really good game. (laughs) I concur. Very good game. All right. Well, so let's talk to the people who made it then and find out how they did that. So we are joined now by Greg Kasavin. He is a developer at Supergiant Games where he has written and designed Bastion and Transistor and now Pyre. And I emailed Greg almost a month ago to set this up just taking it purely on faith that he would not screw up this game because I really liked (laughs) Fashion and and Transistor. And when you arrange an interview in advance, there's always some apprehension. Like, what if they they really produce a a real stinker this time? Can we just ask him about Fashion the whole time? But I don't have to do that. So thank you for making a good game so this interview will not be awkward. Your game is good. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know what? If it was a stinker, it would make a pretty good interview also. That's what I figured. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. So I think we have a lot of questions about this game, but maybe the most pressing is why is Arby's tweeting about your game? (laughs) Why? What? Uh, What is the the demographic there? It's crazy. (laughs) Arby's must have one of the true renaissance people of social media over there. If you you keep an eye on there, they've done amazing stuff. It's actually what's crazy. Yeah, for for those who are not in the loop about Arby's, it is a <laughs> they must be very pleased that we're talking about yes. Arby's. See, it's working. It's working. Yeah. <laughs> but they um yeah, it's a big fast food chain, but they they tweet out this kind of really really out there uh, gaming stuff every once in a while while conveniently placing their products in the background. Um right. but yeah, the, I mean it just came out of nowhere, so they they <laughs> they tweeted a Pyre reference earlier this week, so that was a yeah. that was a fun little moment. Those mozzarella sticks or whatever they are yeah. look pretty yeah. appetizing in the exactly. in the masks of the rights. So it seems to be having played all of your games so far that they do not tend to be set in pleasant places. <laughs> Maybe that is the the case for a lot of video games, just having yeah. that kind of conflict as a backdrop for the action. But this one. 
there's there's some happiness in the setting, but yeah. it's largely a a wasted landscape with people who are turning into demons because they've been banished from where they want to be originally. So is that the the type of story that you envision yourself continuing to tell and and what advantages does it give you to have that kind of backdrop? Yeah, I think um I think it is interesting to to hear comparisons about the settings of our games like um Bastion was set in this kind of surreal post-apocalyptic yet very colorful uh, setting and then Transistor is kind of a science fiction apocalypse in progress. It's not yeah, technically right. <laughs> it's kind of present progressive tense apocalypse. Um <laughs> And uh, and Pyre's in this uh, kind of forsaken land where, yeah, where these exiles are cast down. I don't think we're like sort of morbid about these settings. We, we if anything, we want to kind of subvert a lot of expectations around these types of settings, like in the way how, uh, how despite Bastion technically being a post-apocalyptic game, it was, I, I think, like a very kind of beautiful uh, setting. Um, mm-hmm. And in the case of Pyre, even though the setup is that it's this land of exiles where you know the seemingly the worst uh, people from society are flung down in here um you find that it's a place where there's a lot of kind of kinship and and camaraderie so the setting is like maybe sometimes set up as this antagonistic uh, presence but it's not really what has ever turned out to be the case uh, in our games but you know i think i think part of the ominous settings of our games is, is to is to help set up a sense of conflict and what's what's at stake for the characters and everything you know if if our setting was a mansion in beverly hills and you're just wealthy and watching tv it wouldn't it wouldn't right. make that that much of a game <laughs> or maybe that would be amazing <laughs> you heard it here first <laughs> I was struck by the breadth of influences in Pyre, and I'm just kind of awed by thinking about how this game came together. The writing yeah. is amazing. Thanks. Um, and every aspect of it really informs the other aspect, like the rights, which are the kind of the sports part of the game, the combat section. It's kind of like, I guess, it's like Quidditch meets basketball, I guess, um, is improved by the character development that goes into the other parts of the game. How did how did you piece all these disparate influences and mechanics and art design together into this package like how, how did how do you even pitch yeah. this game I, I just really it's amazing to me yeah thank you thank you so so i'll answer the second question first the uh, how do you pitch this game the the honest to goodness answer is we don't because yeah you don't p- have the, to i guess right, right. well yeah. the pitch uh, honestly the the pitches so we never pitch any of our games and i think they would just never happen if we had to um, we we would often joke uh, in the in the Bastion days. This is a number of years ago at this point that the pitch for Bastion is an action RPG where an old man talks to you the whole time. Like it sounds <laughs> it sounds terrible. Um, and and all all of our games, I think, if kind of reduced to a pitch, they make no sense. Um, and and I think that uh, that actually does make aspects of our lives uh, quite a bit more difficult in the lead up. And thankfully, um, our studio has enjoys having made positively received games. I think it's a little bit easier for us, maybe, but it's not that much easier for us, I think, than if we had a game that we could pitch uh, very concisely. Uh, but in terms of how uh, Pyre came together, you know, it came together probably in a manner reminiscent of how Frankenstein's monster came together. Uh, <laughs> we, 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 you know, we, I'm joking, of course, but we like to just kind of synthesize these different elements that are interesting to us as individuals on on this team. We're a pretty small team here. We're 12 people. And we like to just 
start off with everybody chasing after the ideas that are really exciting and intriguing to them and looking for the common ground there. Um, and I think that's kind of where a lot of the narrative in our games, that's like the, the, the burden on the narrative as it were, is to help tie everything together mm -hmm. and, and make, and make it all, make it all seem like it fits and make the characters make it convincing that the characters kind of believe the situation that they're in. And, and yeah, so for us, you know, we started with the, the core idea behind Pyre was wanting to make a game with an ensemble cast. Like we just wanted to make a game with a lot more characters than our previous games. Cause we love making characters. Uh, but both Bastion and Transistor had very, very few characters in them though. Our characters have been re really well received in our, the worlds of our games and so on. So we wanted to create a context in which, more characters can exist and interact and have their stories unfold, all that sort of thing. And then, you know, we, we became excited by this idea that these characters would have to kind of depend on one another to accomplish their personal goals as well as some sort of shared goal. So they would have to pick each other up when the going got rough or celebrate successes together, all those types of emotions. And that, you know, a lot of the particulars of the setting started to fall into place uh, from that from that early thought. So you mentioned that you're all the way up to 12 people at Supergiant yeah. now, and I think what you started with seven when yeah. you made Bastion. So right. the, the expansion has not been rapid, and I assume that making two well-received games afforded you some opportunities to expand if you had wanted to. Mm -hmm. Are there advantages to keeping it small? Are you trying to keep it small, or have you just not had to make it bigger? Because these three games are very different from each other. I mean, there are certain elements that tie them together, but we're talking about a, a game set in the sky that's kind of a, an action RPG slash shooter, and then a sci-fi futuristic turn-based RPG, and now there's Pyre, which is a sport, essentially, and I, I don't know how you describe it internally, but it's kind of like RPG basketball, or <laughs> I'd be curious if, if, if you have a way that you have referred to it traditionally, but... Have you had to hire people who could give you the capabilities to do each of those new things? Or were you lucky or smart when you started to recruit people who could do a lot of different things? Because we've talked to Sean Vanneman, who said that the yeah. key for them at, at Camposanto has been hiring people who could multitask and, and be jacks of all trades and, and do all sorts of things. So I assume that that has been of use to you, too. Yeah. Uh, so, the, um, yeah, we call we call uh, Pyre a party based RPG, by the way, as our okay. uh, shorthand, but it is really uh, fun to see the different descriptions <laughs> of it. But uh, yeah. that, that's, the, that's the easier part to explain. The, um, to your question, yeah, we started with Seven on Bastion. And from our perspective, we basically were not a complete team on that game. Like, for example, we had no animator uh, on Bastion. We had just one artist in our art director, Gen Z. So anytime we needed an animation of any sort, we would have to uh, quite literally call in a favor to one of our <laughs> friends who typically like had a full-time job working at some other studio wow. or something like that. So that yeah. was like not optimal, right? Like it's uh, Bastion isn't a super animation heavy game, but literally, you know, hey, we need the kid to be able to reload his scrap musket. This is a big deal. Like we need to call in a favor <laughs> and it, it's hard to depend on that as like, if you want to, you know, keep making games for a long time. So after Bastion came out and was thankfully well-received, that was one of the first things that came to mind of like, hey, we could really use an animator and ideally a 3D modeler as well, someone who could do the whole thing uh, start to finish. Uh, even though uh, our games are, are technically 2D, 
we do a 3D render some of the characters and stuff like that, and then turn them into thousands and thousands of uh, individual frames of animation. So we found uh, we found a gentleman named uh, Camilo Vanegas who joined us. He does all of our 3D modeling and rigging and animation. So all the characters, all the exiles that you see running around during the rights, that's all one guy. That's something that our art director was not able to achieve with her skill set. The other person that, anyway, I could go through a piece by piece. That's a specific example. But the other disciplines that we were missing was like quality assurance. We didn't have anyone doing QA. So a gentleman named Morgan Wren joined us, joined us and has been like just really essential in, especially as we we're making these games that have a, like Pyre's our biggest game ever. We just absolutely desperately needed focus on quality assurance internally. So we grew, uh, you know, from seven to 12 people basically completing our team, but it's really important to us to stay small. Uh, we, ha we don't have a desire to grow substantially if we were to grow, it would really change this place entirely. Like everything about how we operate is contingent on us being small and uh, people having their own discipline to focus on. Like we, apart from having three artists and two engineers, we basically only have one person in each of the other disciplines or uh, Amir and I actually share uh, uh, design, design responsibilities as well. But for the most part, it's only one or two people doing each type of thing here. Um, and that gives people a, like a tremendous amount of ownership it also you know puts a big burden on them of responsibility around that part of the game that we make but it feels it feels really good to be able to have a big part in a in a production like this and so we base games our ideas are like constrained by having people here who can execute them so we try not to mm -hmm. we try not to like you're probably not going to see some massive um, massively multiplayer online rpg or something from us it's like we just don't even really think about ideas that we can't even imagine building ourselves or we think about them we just don't think about those being games that we want to make uh, we 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 try to work within the constraints of what we can honestly think that we can accomplish ourselves what does as you're the creative director and yeah. writer for Supergiant, what does creative director entail and what does that mean for your day-to-day -day workflow on yeah. this project and others yeah that's a good question you know quite frankly it's it's an outward facing title that really doesn't mean a lot sure what it practically means is that i am the person who is like responsible for the fiction uh, of our games and the words um i put uh, like i put the words into our video games whether they are the words that are like in the main menu or the words in the you know emotional end scene or something like that, so uh, I, I do uh, I do whatever form of writing uh, that's necessary for our games. But early on in our pre-production, I I do I'm responsible for kind of the the world building and and documentation aspects, which is a highly highly collaborative process. It means working very very closely. Uh, with Gen Z, our art director, Darren Korb, our composer and audio director, and uh, Amir Rao, our studio director, who is a kind of functionally uh, lead designer on our on our games, um, among his other responsibilities. So as I, as I previously described, everyone's kind of doing their own thing in pre-production and trying to like get at something that they find compelling. Uh, and part of my job is to help find the connective tissue, help find the common ground that links those disparate ideas together through the world development and so on. You know, specifically on Pyre, I collaborated very closely with Jen on all of the on all the character designs. She obviously, you know, created the look of the characters, uh, but uh, that's uh, informed by 
the writing and th yeah. that that type the of artist, work that I think. The art is really, really striking. Every every thank aspect yeah. of this game works together with the other pieces just really well. Yeah, thank you. I, 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 think, I think a lot of that is owed to us, yeah, just being a small team where we are collaborating closely. So... So yeah, as as creative director, I'm just kind of in the in the thick of that and making sure that the pieces fit together as as well as possible. But we're not we're not a studio where like we don't just back solve our games from like a story idea. There isn't one person who is just like here's the game we're making and everyone else. There's no design document even. It's very like we just communicate a lot and uh, a lot of people work uh, independently towards some common purpose. But it's it's kind of organizationally it's very flat. Nobody really kind of answers to anybody else it's all uh, a negotiation as we're as we're building our games together so how did you decide how much storytelling versus how much of the rights the game within the game essentially because i think the the rights could stand up as a game in themselves and and maybe we'll ask you about that in a minute but I think each enhances the other, right? And so having a sense of these characters, I think, helps increase the, the stakes when you yeah. are actually playing the game. On the other hand, sometimes the game within the game is so good that I just want to get to the game within the game. So I assume that you are wary of keeping people from that too and, and trying to find that right balance where they're enhancing each other and you're not wishing for one or the other at any particular time yeah no that's exactly right i mean the answer to the question is we just we just iterate really heavily that that's like trying to strike the right balance trying to keep the pace uh exciting and and brisk uh and surprising is something that we spend the entirety of development iterating on sorting out, tinkering with, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, in the um, in the case of Pyre, we knew that we wanted the stakes of these these kind of mystical competitions called the rights to feel significant. And we wanted to create a game where you could really kind of get close to a large cast of characters. And we wanted a setting where you can have like sort of quiet moments with the characters where it wasn't just constantly in the thick of battle or whatever which th that's part of the genre change for us you know having gone from action rpgs where the prevailing mode of play is just combat uh to just something that where the pace is different we wanted to try it you know the pace is just a very highly iterative uh process there where we knew that we wanted to build up these characters so that it could just sort of go somewhere so you could feel start to feel attached to them so that when you would get to these moments where you're confronted with these decisions on you know now finally someone can go free from this purgatory who's it going to be mm -hmm. why uh, on what basis are you deciding and are you even deciding between your own guys maybe maybe you actually want one of your adversaries yeah. to get out in, yeah. instead all of those types of moments were like really exciting for us to think about we were really intrigued by building toward that kind of uh, scenario just because it seemed so it seemed so f uh, fascinating to us um so that's kind of why that that is like the function of the narrative empire you know to be there so that you can relate to the characters they're not just kind of it's not just a chess game with like generic pieces um, you mm -hmm. uh, hopefully you actually feel uh, grow to feel something for for these characters that that are depending on you and uh, we you know we've always I think our games have always benefited from that from us using narrative to to instill uh, kind of a deeper emotional connection in the in the experience so yeah here we we went for this 
we went for a mode of storytelling that is more uh, traditional in some ways and more um, honestly more indulgent in some ways as well, uh, where it's just kind of the, the story is more at the forefront of this game. Uh, it's something we were certainly uh, very cautious about. Uh, we know that uh, particularly Bastion has very much this kind of pick up and play quality uh, that uh, we really yeah. we, we really prize uh, in Bastion. But part of the challenge that we take upon ourselves is when we set out to make a new game each time is to not be burdened by what we did in our last game. Like it's far more important to us to make games that have their own strong, distinct identity than just to use all the ideas that worked well for us in the past. If we just if we just kept using the ideas that worked well for us in the past, we wouldn't have made Transistor. We would have probably just made Bastion 2 and we wouldn't have made Pyre. We probably would have made Bastion 3 and or whatever <laughs> and so on. And and that, you know, that alternate reality in which we did that, that might be perfectly that may be a perfectly decent uh, alternate reality. It's just we feel very privileged as a studio of our size to be able to make what we want essentially and not you know at least thus far we haven't been sort of boxed in by our successes as it were which which can it's so rare for a game studio to experience any success at all uh so even when they do often they they can get kind of bound by it right like um guess what if you make the next halo you're probably just going to be making Halo for a long time. Um, yeah. And uh, we, we've we enjoyed this kind of medium status where our games have done really well for a studio of our scale, but we can afford, you know, we self-fund our projects. It's felt very good to make whatever we want. Um, and we'd rather push ourselves creatively and find out just how much we're capable of than just kind of keep chasing after the first, you know, successful kind of formula that we uh, that we stumbled upon. I think you've just explained really succinctly and well about how you see your writing to kind of like engage these emotional levers in the player. But for me, that's the thing that takes your game to the next level. But on a most general sense, the rights that ha the rights are so well designed, like as a game within a game, it's yeah. so well designed. It could stand on its own, I think. Yeah. Uh, how did that, it seems like such a completely different philosophical process from the writing. I mean, you can feel the math underneath the, yeah, the yeah. rights. How did that come together? And then how, it just seems like a, a tremendous amount of craftsmanship and work went, and thought went into tying those really mathematical processes to the emotional processes of the writing. Yeah, that um, for sure. I mean, we, a lot of the initial gameplay prototyping was by Amir, who I mentioned before, and, and uh, Gavin Simon. Uh, Gavin is uh, an engineer, like an AI uh, programmer by trade, and Amir uh, has a background in design, in game design. So uh, they're, as the two co-founders of Supergiant, they were the ones who kind of initially dropped everything and moved into a house uh, in San Jose and started working on Bastion, you know, got a character moving around on screen, swinging a hammer, uh, rolling around and stuff like that. Um, so we've always sort of uh, pursued a similar uh, process with now three games deep where we start with gameplay prototyping that those two head up and but with an eye toward the kind of thematic goal of the experience we talk a lot about the tone and the theme of the experience from the beginning or at least what we what we think we want to achieve with that we have an idea that we're that we're initially driving toward um so we knew uh, like i mentioned previously with this game this idea of uh characters having to depend on one another and having to like confront unique adversaries for whom the stakes are just as high. Um, so 
this idea of like uh, a world filled with unique characters where the stakes are high for everybody, where they have to depend on one another. Those those types of ideas kind of informed on a high level some of what we were going for. But then, yeah, it comes down to just the the, the raw uh, gameplay prototyping. And and if it didn't work out, if we like, you know, instead made a like we wouldn't have tried to graft this type of story on right. some other thing like right. it, it only it only worked because we found that that the gameplay prototyping was was producing something compelling to us like if if we yeah if we instead but but yeah i'm describing like a process that for us is like very organic we we don't really know where the gameplay prototyping is going to lead us it was similar with transistors like quasi turn based design there that was something we were very intrigued by but if it went in some other direction we would have just sort of followed where that would have taken us but in this case we 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 found something that was compelling to us early and we kept sort of refining this central game system while um while building up the world and the story and the characters uh alongside it mm-hmm. so when i finished the game i thought that was very satisfying now mm-hmm. how do i get to the ranked <laughs> matches and yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm sure that you've thought about this, and I'm very curious about what you've thought, because you just mentioned that the scale of the studio dictates the scale of the games to a certain extent, and I'm sure you didn't set out to create an eSport or anything, but it seems like the game could support that kind of community, possibly, and Jason and I were just talking about how much fun it might be as a mobile game, so... I mean, you support local multi right now. Yeah. Are there thoughts of blowing it up and making it an online multiplayer game? Yeah. So we. So so to your point, yeah. Uh, Pyre is our first foray into any kind of a multiplayer. We've always, as a as a team and as game players, we've always enjoyed. You know, even though I think we're known for these kind of narrative rich like single player experiences we ourselves mm-hmm. as players play tons of multiplayer games and competitive games and and pyre created for us this opportunity to like sort of get our feet wet there and and we have a, and we have a versus mode as part of the package that i i think is really really cool it has tons mm-hmm. of unique content in there you could play as a bunch of the characters that you face in the campaign but you can't that you can't play as so i i always find that type of thing uh, to be really fun in games but yeah, we um, we stopped short of supporting uh, online multiplayer because I think like it, it was something we investigated in in detail and in fact um, got working in a rudimentary way. But we got it working only to the point where we could see we like got to the base of the mountain uh, to give mm-hmm. you an analogy, and and then it's it's that point where you you look up and you see where that mountaintop is, and uh, it's like trying like, to get to the Commonwealth. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, probably a little bit like that. Like where I think, I think if you if you look at any successful multiplayer game released in the last like five, probably even ten years, just about all of them. I mean, online multiplayer in particular. The online multiplayer is probably at the center of that game's development. It is probably mm-hmm. the foremost thing that all the developers are like, okay, if we do one thing right, the online has to not be terrible. We right. have to get this right. right. For for us, as a, I, I and I honest I honest to goodness think that bad online play is like way worse than no online play. Bad online play is is one of the worst and most frustrating experiences in games because you're like just as you're getting invested, oh you disconnect or oh there's terrible lag or like oh it didn't track your stats or oh the guy pulled a cable on you etc cetera, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, the the amount of like to do it properly is a tremendously huge 
investment that can be absolutely worth it. But with everything else that we were doing on Pyre and this already being by a significant margin, the biggest game our team has mm -hmm. ever made, we were like, nope, that is not, <laughs> that is not happening. Um, it was, it was out of, it was out of reach for us. And if we, if we did it, the whole game would have been worse and the online play probably would have been terrible. Uh, that, uh -huh. that was the, that was basically our thinking around the decision. So it's not, for the same reason, it's not something where it's like, oh, we're just going to do it in an update. Like it, it has to be, it has to be central to your development. But having said all that, it's like, while we don't have any plans, like all of our plans sort of ended with the launch of Pyre. As a small team, we can be very tactical and we put all our eggs in one basket with each of our games. It's like kind of nothing matters after, like we never, we don't know anything about what game we would make next or any of that stuff. We we don't even talk about anything like that because that's just how important the launch of our games is to us. Everything is determined by how our games are received. It is what provides us with the resources to continue on as a, as a studio. So mm -hmm. uh, if Pyre you know, becomes the next overnight sensation and all of a sudden dethrones, you know, player unknown, player unknown <laughs> battlegrounds on, on Steam or whatever, uh, I'm sure we would look very carefully um, at, at things like uh, online multiplayer, but it's really just kind of dictated by the reality of how the reality of the game's reception and, and what, what the player community kind of most wants to see out of it. Like one of the, one of the almost ironic aspects of working on a game like this, uh, it being our big, Despite being our biggest game ever, I think it's also the game where like players' imaginations run the wildest in terms of where it could go and what more they would like to see as part of it. Like it's really mm -hmm. important to us to make games that feel complete, where they don't leave the player wishing that they had this, that, or the other thing as part of the package. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's very natural, you know, especially when you enjoy a game, to be like, oh man, it would be great if it could have done this or that, or it would be great if the sequel, you know, could do this or that. So we're, we're, um, we really like hearing feedback about that stuff and seeing, you know, this week, especially the game just came out uh, a couple of days ago. We're just kind of being inundated with responses to it and, and we're still sort of digesting yeah. it, all of that. All right. So if everyone listening goes and buys the game, we could someday see competitive pyre. So just go everyone buy the game. That's what I'm taking from that, that response. That would be, everyone go buy the game would be a fantastic outcome. <laughs> it's a wonderful it really is a really is a wonderful game. Thank Great you. game. So I wanted to wrap up with a mostly unrelated question. Music has been a, a big part yeah. of Supergiant's games. We're about to talk to Darren about the actual music in the games and it's been part of the story too. There's a you know, a minstrel who travels with you in Pyre, the protagonist of Transistor is a singer, etc. But it seems like music is part of the development process, too. And yep. I was intrigued by a tweet of yours from March when you were still working on the game. And you said that every game you've worked on has had a secret soundtrack, which you have yeah. listened to nonstop while working on it and likely shaped everything you did in that game. And I wanted to know if you could divulge any of the secrets oh, of man. your Pyre development soundtrack, because I am someone who is just unable to work really while I'm listening to things, which I wish were not the case. But I am curious about what kind of things you pick that don't distract you while you're working and also how they actually rub off on your writing. So if you want to tell us any specific tracks or how you come up with this playlist, I'd be interested in that. Yeah, that, I mean that's a really uh, that's a really interesting question. It's it's funny because I would I would almost be 
I refer to it, yeah, as as like a uh, secret playlist uh, mm-hmm. because it really is. It's so m- music, as I think a lot of people can relate to. It's it can be very deeply personal. So I actually really, I I really struggle with like any questions when it comes to like any specifics about influences because it, it it's such a hodgepodge of stuff for me that mm-hmm. I get I get like sort of really anxious when I talk specifics because I always know that I'm leaving something out. So I don't like to single anything out because because my mind just doesn't sort of work that way where I can't just say like, oh, it's Radiohead or something like that and, and have that be like sufficient. But to speak more broadly to it and I could get a little bit more specific as I go, it is true that like with each with each game I've worked on, at least in the last like seven years or so, I think at the end of a project, I've like had to just sort of flush away whatever music I was listening to at the time, it was too strongly associated with my work there. And, and part of my, I think like part of my own, you know, creative process working on something new involves just like listening to random stuff and seeing and, and, and searching for that feeling where it's like, wait, yes, this is, this is the feeling I'm going for. And it's a purely, it's purely a feel thing. So on, on Bastion, yeah, there was a certain set of artists or music that I would listen to over and over and likewise on Transistor, likewise on Pyre. On Pyre, it's like more discreet where it's just, like I said, it's almost, I think I, I mentioned to you in writing, it's, it's, it's frankly almost embarrassing. It's just like, <laughs> I listen to like a lot of like 90s, like gangster rap. And mm-hmm. I also listen to like a bunch of just like trance music that young women in their 20s as opposed to like 40 year old nearly 40 year old game developers are probably uh, listening to more commonly so it's mm-hmm. just uh, I, I think almost speaking to the mishmash of of styles in our games I, I i would just bounce between these completely different uh musical styles but but kind of no more than those particular genres because i think like especially once i'm deep in the production process i'm like desperately trying to sort of hold on to the whatever consistency I feel I want to like wake up the next day with the same thought process and not sort of lose, lose the thread on where I'm going with the narrative. So I feel like listening to the same music actually keeps me, it sort of steadies me around the the emotional core. Once I find that music, then that music reminds me of like the emotional core of what I'm going for. And so I just kind of listen to it over and over mm-hmm. to, to keep me, to keep me centered, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think, I actually think listening to the same stuff over and over is what allows you to, it's what keeps it from being distracting. Like when you listen to new music, then you're tuning into the lyrics and it can be very distracting that way. But when it's something you've heard a lot of times before, you just sort of uh, absorb it almost like subdermally or something. So I can, I can tune it out um, and just, and just use it to, to work as, as, as background music or background noise uh, while I work. Finally, you got your start writing for GameSpot, although by now you've, you've been in, game developing for longer than you were writing but how, how does that how does your previous life as a, as a critic and a writer about games inform what you do now if at all yeah um so i uh yeah i did work at GameSpot for 10 years I, I actually wrote about i had been writing about games for a couple of years prior to that like straight out of high school so i technically still i just crossed my 10-year mark this <laughs> Little... year in uh game development <laughs> sure. so i haven't quite uh crossed <laughs> Cross my uh, game but, writing. But like, I think I think it counts yeah. from your first check as a, yeah, as yeah, a writer. Yeah. It's, prob- <laughs> it's, it's probably uh, it's probably pretty close for sure. Um, yeah, I think you know having worked as a 
like as a game critic for a long time, it really it's really valuable to understand what you like, what you don't like, yeah. why it works on you, why it doesn't work on you, right? Like I think when you ask, there's millions of game players out there. If you ask the average person what's a game they like, they'll they'll tell you the game. It's like, why do you like it? Like it's it's sick, like it's dope or whatever. It's like having to work past that initial like gut reaction of just liking something to truly understanding why it works so well for you, why it makes you feel the way you feel. That's like being a being a critic, it forces you to to confront that. It forces you to articulate those things. So for me, it was like a combination of training myself to like basically understand why I really liked certain games and didn't like other games as much. And uh, it gave me, uh, quite frankly, an excuse to play tons and tons and tons of games that uh, I think if it, if I was just a kind of normal civilian, as it were, I wouldn't have been able to justify that uh, either financially or with my time. Um, so just playing tons of games uh, has been helpful to me just to give me like a broad base of references. And then the other, but that's all just like one set of stuff. Actually, like another like extremely valuable aspect of my past experience was just GameSpot is like, it's a big old website. It it grew to be a pretty large, it, it was owned by uh, CNET Networks at the time, which is now owned by CBS, but that's after the, the CBS uh, acquisition is after my time. But just like, being part of a big company or a like growing to be part of a big company, having to interact with people in different uh, disciplines, you know, I had to work with artists, I had to work with engineers, etc. So if that sounds a little bit familiar, uh, it's because there's a lot of common ground there, just as far as like, having to figure out how to be like, an effective part of a team, how to how to find your place, how to interact with people in a way that isn't terrible. <laughs> um, and and <laughs> the, all, all those things, I think, I think if all, if I just like knew about games, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have prepared me as well as, as the, as the actual experience of like working on, on GameSpot, which at the end of the day is like a big old piece of software, just like a video game. Um, so mm -hmm. there was a lot, of, a lot of that really helped me uh, to, to not feel completely out of my element when I when I made the when I made the switch initially. Well, I don't know if it's nostalgia for your experience on the other side or not, but you're still personally answering requests for review codes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when you say yeah. that you're a when you say yeah. that you're a writer for Supergiant Games, you are literally writing everything, including responses to the contact form on your website. So yep. maybe maybe if this game sells really well, you could get a, a PR person who could take some <laughs> of the load off of you. <laughs> So you can find Greg on Twitter at Kasavin. You can find out more about Pyre on Twitter at Arby's, I believe, is the best place to find <laughs> yes, out yeah, about the game. Definitely. <laughs> well, well you can go to supergiantgames.com and you can find Pyre on Steam on PS4. And we're just going to take a very quick break and then we'll be back with Greg's colleague, Darren Korb, to talk about a different aspect of Pyre. So thanks, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. 
To make a great game, to play a great game, you gotta get some sleep. The best way to do that is with Casper, an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Casper's supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. You can try Casper for 100 nights, risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're gonna spend a third of your life on it if you actually sleep the recommended amount, which you may not now, but maybe you would if you had a Casper mattress. Casper offers free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada, and with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com achievement. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com achievement and using offer code achievement. Everyone knows how to spell achievement, right? Just check your phone right now. It's on the screen. Terms and conditions apply. Now let's get back to Pyre. joined by another of the 12 members of Supergiant, yeah. this time the audio director for Supergiant, Darren Korb, who is the composer for Pyre, as well as Bastion and Transistor. Hello, Darren. Hello. How's it going? Hello. It's going well. So we've wanted to have a composer on for some time, and we haven't yet, so we figured we would just start at the top because your <laughs> composition is, is fantastic. And well, thank, is thank you very much. such an important part of these games as well as just a, a standalone soundtrack that I will queue up, which is not the case for that many video games. But can you describe your musical career before you got into games because i know that you have a lifelong connection with amir and and that's how you first got involved with supergiant but you were in bands you are in bands you play other kinds of music so how does that differ from your video game composition yeah um so yeah my my i got my start yeah playing kind of rock music well so before that i got my start being in musical theater since I was a little kid, actually. So I started performing in musicals as a little kid, and I, that's how I sort of got into music as a singer and, and a performer and picked up guitar when I was about 11, I think, and sort of started playing in bands shortly thereafter and then writing songs shortly after that. And that's sort of my background is as a songwriter and kind of a rock musician. And then, you know, in, in high school and college, I got really interested in recording and spent some time interning in a recording studio and studied a little bit of music production stuff in school and and got really into that. I guess my first background is as a musician and kind of rock musician and then then as like a recording engineer producer are sort of the two the two main main things I think that influence how I how I make music. Um and I didn't really have any experience composing for anything until I guess in college I did a couple of little kind of film projects. Uh, for some friends, basically, um, nothing particularly professional. I did one, one or two professional things, um, but nothing, nothing big. And and I didn't really have any experience composing for games when I started work on Bastion. And the way I got into that was, as I think, as you know, Amir uh, just kind of asked me to do it, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And we we used to play in bands together for years. He was my drummer for all through middle school and high school. You know, we played in bands together. Yeah. It certainly was, I I lucked into it, I would say, uh, more than anything else. (laughs) 
as you know, playing music live versus soundtracking for which, in which case you have to take an account like mood and a less visceral feel is two philosophically different ways to approach music. Mm-hmm. How much do the two inform each other? And like, is how do you decide? Do you have pre-written things that you're like, I, I think this would be good for this particular moment? Or do you just go in fresh, totally fresh, and, and try and create something new every time? In general, it's all from scratch. There, I guess on Bastion, there were a couple of riffs I had floating around that I then used for Bastion. But since then, it's all been sort of from scratch. And and, and all the other, the rest of Bastion was all, all sort of from scratch as well. So yeah, I don't go in with stuff in mind that I think you know, I want to apply to the game. It's more like, what do I need? What sort of mood do we need to represent with this piece or convey? What tone needs to be reinforced with this particular piece of music? How how do we intend to use it in the game? And usually those are questions that I'm asking when I'm composing pieces. Sometimes, like right at the beginning of a project, I'll be composing just sort of experimental pieces, meaning I'm just sort of searching for the tone and we're not really sure how it might be used yet. But then we'll sort of find a place for it. And that happens for maybe the first quarter or third of a, of the project. And then eventually, once the game sort of takes more shape, then I'll have specific things that I'm composing for. Like this particular place needs some theme music or this, you know, this particular set of characters need their uh, theme to go with them. Or we need a something to, you know, a really intense piece of music for this particular moment in the game, or et cetera. And so I would imagine that a lot of composers are are kind of working as contract workers from outside the studio, and maybe they see a rough cut of something or some storyboards or even just concepts, and then they're kind of creating on their own and, and sending tracks back and forth, that sort of thing. But I take it you are there all the time, right? You're, you're watching yeah. the development, you're embedded. So what is your... Day to day, are you attending every meeting, every planning meeting? Are you seeing the latest build of the game constantly? Are you trying to disengage yourself at all to work on the music, or are you just very much immersed in it? I'm pretty immersed in it. I go to, you know, I attend fewer meetings than some other team members, but but uh, but I'm there for meetings and and I, you know, play the game constantly and have access to the latest build all the time. And and you know, we have a vocal booth. Uh, that's a pretty sizable vocal booth in the office that I use to do basically all my recording. So yeah, I just go in there no matter what's going on and <laughs> shut the door and work on recording stuff. And um, yeah, it's been it's been a transition because I actually used to work remotely for the first two projects. I was mm-hmm. in New York, and so I would sort of telecommute. And still, I had access to all the build and everything, and and was involved. But it certainly is a different vibe being in the office, um, which I've been for almost all of Pyre. Mm-hmm. I moved kind of right towards the beginning of the project. I know musician myself. I know musicians love to talk about their gear. Yeah. So let's talk. <laughs> so let's talk gear. What is? Yes. So what do you? What do you build on? Like, what do you compose? What's your base instrument that you compose on? What apps are you using? Are you using Pro Tools? Yes. Using... Yeah. So uh, yeah, my so I I generally write on guitar, although a lot of times I'll fiddle with instruments that I'm not as comfortable with on purpose um, to try and write kind of by ear because I find that sometimes or I'll tune my guitar messed up way um, mm. sometimes sometimes when you when I or at least for me when I write on an instrument that I'm kind of familiar with your fingers want to do certain things from muscle memory that's just like stuff you're comfortable playing and it can like lead you in certain directions that maybe aren't 
write <laughs> for what you're working on. So sometimes I'll pick up another stringed instrument that I can play mechanically, but I don't know chords on, and I don't, you know, like the mandolin, I'm sort of, I can physically play it because I play guitar and it's the same thing, mechanically speaking, but I just like don't know chords on the mandolin or whatever. So I have to do, so it's all by ear. So, so sometimes I'll write that way, but yeah, usually it's guitar and sometimes keyboard occasionally. And sometimes I'll start with percussion or a loop or some sort of drum beat that I like, but I use Logic as my mm. software platform of choice. I really love how fast it is to for composing purposes and and recording just to get something that sounds almost exactly like what you have in mind you can get there so fast like it's the from from zero to really close to what you want is like there's a super fast because there's incredible presets and all sorts of awesome stuff like that and can you describe if there's a, a difference from game to game in the overarching sound you were going for or the themes you were trying to embody in the music can you describe what that was or, or what was different about how you approached pyre from transistor yeah, and bastion absolutely i mean i think my main goal with any project is just to try and reinforce and convey the tone of the game as much as possible and then specifically within that you know variations moment to moment tonal shifts and, and what, what we're trying to convey at a particular moment tonally. And that's sort of my, I consider that to be like the most important part of the, the composition is just how does it feel? Is it the feel we're going for? You know, and that's sort of the thing I ask myself um, a lot. And, you know, each game has had a pretty significantly different vibe. Bastion certainly had some frontiersy kind of western feel right. to to the game and mm -hmm. that's something that i was trying to reinforce and convey in the music for example and transistor had sort of a more bleak futuristic kind of lonely vibe and i tried to you know again push on that as much as i could with the music and uh and and that also pointed me in the direction of like a different sonic palette that was more appropriate for that mood more electronic sounds electric guitars things that, you know, lots of creepy delays and interesting reverb and stuff like that. And for Pyre, I would say this game has probably the biggest tonal range of all the games we've made. Yes. Like, so it certainly was cool because I, I have probably the broadest palette of instruments on this game that I've used and also the broadest kind of range in terms of tone of the pieces that I've made for it. Mm -hmm. And that was really exciting to do. Um, and it was sort of... I had some specific ideas about what instruments I wanted to try and use as much as I could. Um, I used auto harp uh, quite a bit, uh, mandolin, a ton of pieces, acoustic guitar, going for like kind of a bardic quality to a lot of the instrumentation. Mm -hmm. And then also I felt like just based on the artwork and the tone of the game that trying to trying to infuse the music with like a, an acoustic 70s fantasy rock vibe. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was sort of one of the things I was going for too. Like, think the beginning of Stairway to Heaven or something, or like the Battle mm -hmm. of Evermore. That's know. definitely been there. Yeah. So, so that all that stuff was was in there too, and and because I think that that matched up really well with the art style and the tone that we were going for with this project. Yeah. What's the the farthest you went from your musical comfort zone? Would you say on on a track in this game, whether it's instrumentally or just the the tone of the the music, what what it owes a debt to? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, 
I think it's sort of a, the answer to a different question, but the the, the farthest one from the cent, like the musical center of this game is probably Thrash Pack, which is the sort of dissidence theme that's like full on aggressive electric guitars and crazy yeah. drums and just right. straight on rock. And and it's not far from my comfort zone necessarily because I you know I like that stuff and <laughs> and and I uh, it's not it's stuff that I would play I have I haven't done for a game before but I am comfortable with it so it's not quite the answer to your question but um, I guess far from my comfort zone there were a couple of pieces so there was let's see what Knights of the Sea was something that for some reason took me like a really long time to do mm -hmm. um, it's the one that's sort of like the piratey jig. And that one just took a long time because I was, I I was really conscious. Like I didn't want it to make make it sound exactly like other stuff that also does that. So I was sort of like trying to thread the needle with like make it different enough from from other things that I'm aware of, but still try to convey uh, this idea that I'm going for. So that was, I guess, farthest from my comfort zone in terms of it was maybe the most struggle to to mm -hmm. get through. But but I'm really happy with how it turned out. I, I really enjoy enjoy that piece a lot. Yeah. Is there another specific track maybe that you were most happy with or that you felt like you, you came closest to nailing what you set out to do or, or that blend of influences? Yeah. I mean, so so there's a couple I can think of. One of them that I think really helped me find the direction for the rest of the music in the game was uh, Downside Ballad, mm -hmm. which is basically the first track I made with the goal of let me try to use some influence from like 70s fantasy rock stuff yeah um then let me let me go that way and see where it takes me and and um that was the first track that i did with that in mind and i think it really helped me find the direction for a lot of the rest of the music So that that was one, and then another one with which I'm was just fun to finish was uh, in the flame, mm -hmm. because the way I do those is kind of funny. I I write a minute long song for the trailer a year ago, you know, uh -huh. and then I wrote the rest of it like you know a month ago <laughs> <laughs> and finished and finished it uh, for the soundtrack, and that was really on transistor. I did the, like something similar with uh, we all become where, you know, I wrote the first part, you know, and then a year later I wrote the second part. That one I was sort of stressing for a long time about doing that and and really was like working on it forever. And this one in the flame, just like I wrote the rest of that song in like an afternoon, you know, Ashley came over and recorded it the next day and then it was like done. I just mixed it and it was done. And it was just like came together. I was so happy with it. It was like, yeah, it, I don't know. I was just super happy with how quickly it came together and and how well I feel like it turned out. It just yeah, it it, it just really kind of gelled and and I didn't have to stress about it too much, which is really nice. One of my professors for composition once told me for film scoring, in a general sense, that if you notice the music for a movie, if you notice the soundtrack, then it's mm -hmm. bad. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I 
subscribe to that all the time. But generally speaking, I think you need a balance between between serving the piece and and trying to add something to it. Also, how do you how do you try to try to strike that balance? How do you know if you've gone too far? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a little bit different in a game, you know, Mm -hmm. where well, at least for my process, you know, we're we're always thinking about how one of the considerations is how long will the player have to listen to this piece right what is happening while the player <laughs> yeah while, I, this you know, is while he's like right like I, is, a, is is this piece going to play for 20 minutes while they yeah. dig through me right. or whatever so so kind of building a piece to stand up to repeated listens and not stick out too much like right that's one of the things that's one consideration for example is if you're only going to hear a piece once it can pull all the focus at once if it's at the right moment, you know, is sort of my feeling. Early um, in my early in my gameplay, I walked away from, you know, a text exchange in the game. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was that kind of rollicking, bluesy kind of loop yeah. that yeah. and uh and I remember thinking at, at a certain point, realizing that I had walked away from the game and that, that yeah. was playing, I was like, actually yeah. this is this is still, this is not annoying. This is good. Yeah. Great. <laughs> no, that's that's good to hear. And yeah. well, another thing we did sort of to combat some of that the fatigue from repeated listens because we knew that we were building a sort of a longer game and that you might hear some pieces for quite a while. We have all sorts of dynamic STEM stuff happening in the playback mm. of, of most of the pieces in the game. So even the pieces that play when you're interacting with the other characters and in your wagon and, you know, and this and that and traveling around the overmap, those pieces all have stems that kind of turn on and off based on what you're doing and what type of dialogue exchange is happening. If you're reading some narration text or you're, talking to another character, different stems from that piece are going to play depending on, on which of the states. So that helps, I think, add a little bit of life and, and uh, to the piece and make it less repetitive because you're not, you're not really here listening to the same stem all the time or the same set of stems. Mm-hmm. Um, then the arrangement sort of evolves based on what you're doing. Yeah, well, I was curious about that because there is a, a point later in the game where your wagon, which normally allows you to fly quickly, there's a, mm-hmm. a boost that you mm-hmm. can press down. There's this one sequence where you can't use the boost and you have to proceed at a certain slower pace. And mm-hmm. while you're doing that, a song is playing yeah. that is more of a, you know, clear out the decks and, and listen to this song sort of yeah. song, more so yeah. than a background song. But yeah. there aren't that many places in the game where it's like that. Usually it's the accompaniment to something else. And yes. I'm curious about the key to writing a song that can repeat forever. <laughs> just how do you do yeah. that? Because <laughs> you just don't know how long this is going to take a person. They might get up and go away and come back like Jason did. So how do you make that seamless? Like there were times when... I would not even necessarily realize that the same song was playing, but it was. And so it's probably not easy to do that. Yeah, it was a challenge. I mean, I I focus more on that, I think, for this game than I ever have in the past. And you're you're talking about for specifically for the instrumental. Well, so the so that song, the song that plays when you travel in that moment in the game, we have it end and it does not loop. You can only hear it Uh once. Okay, uh, I, I obliged what you were trying to do there, and I just yeah. I finished at the, yeah. the time when the song finished, yeah, so I didn't yeah. get to hear what happened next. Yeah, what would happen next is just the ambience until uh-huh. you arrive, ambient sound until you arrive at the location you're going to. Okay. But yeah, so the pieces that, that are set up to repeat, it's uh, it's tricky. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of a balance of trying to make it not super... I tried to not do like a ton of melody <laughs> actually uh-huh. in a lot of the pieces um so there's sort of implied melody but nothing too in your face 
because I didn't want to pull too much focus. Again, I think right. a lot of it is just vibe and trying to to convey a vibe and be sort of pleasant and both and convey that vibe without being too distracting. And when you do that, combined with the sort of stem switching stuff that we set up, I feel like that that allows you to listen to a piece for quite a long time before you even realize that you've been listening to the same piece for so long. Um, yeah. And it gives the illusion of of it being five times as long maybe as it actually is. And you don't really notice the looping. Uh, so so the most of the pieces that do repeat like that are about four or four and a half minutes long. Mm -hmm. So they don't loop too many times generally speaking, uh, depending on what you're doing, you, you know, unless you're sitting there for, for 20 minutes, but you're, you'll still only hear it like five times ish, you know? Uh -huh. So, so I try to make the, you know, give the pieces some decent length so that the repetitions would be less noticeable and less frequent and try to make the structure sort of flowy, <laughs> if that makes sense. So it can, yeah. it's not too, um, so the changes aren't too pronounced and, and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. Well, and what were the, the shortest pieces or sounds that you had to compose? Because I'm sure that you probably had a hand in or, or just completely did everything. Like when you discover a new page of the book, for instance, there's a single chord that plays, right? When, sure. you, when you activate a new page. So I assume that you're doing that sort of thing too, yep. as, in addition to the longer pieces. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, you know, and I'm making all, so I make all the sound effects uh, as well. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. so, so yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, those are, you know, I, I, I call those stingers, uh, you know, musical <laughs> stingers is just to kind of the sound, the music, the musical stuff that are used as sound effects. And, and I did a lot of that. A lot of the sound effects have a musical component. I used sort of a choir sound in a ton of the actual sound effects, uh, involving the book and also the rights themselves. So yeah, there's a bunch of that and, you know, there's a lot of them are just sort of one short little chord. Um, or mm -hmm. note. And then sort of the longest piece, I think, was the game, the, the piece that plays at the end of the game is about almost six minutes long, I think, or thereabouts. So that's pretty yeah. long. One of the longer songs I've ever written that has lyrics, at least. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, there was, it seemed appropriate just because it, there's a lot to cover. You know, we wanted to give each character their sort of moment in the song. And to do that, you know, there are a lot of characters. And to do that, we had to make it, you know, pretty long. <laughs> Who are the composers in either games, film, television that that uh, that you enjoy? Sure, yeah, I really um, like Danny Elfman's '80s, '90s stuff mm -hmm. that he did yep. uh, for mm -hmm. Tim Burton. Uh, like a lot of that stuff is super awesome. Yeah, um, I love that. Austin Wintry's work is really cool, mm -hmm. um, and just totally not. It's just from a different world. Like I, it's just stuff that I just would never approach stuff that way because i don't have the background for it you know we have just totally different backgrounds but he's a he's a cool guy and um, i like his work a lot you know of course john williams and all that stuff so right. he's sort of undeniably great and um other game stuff i really like laura shigahara like uh, plants vs zombies the first one mm -hmm. i really love yeah. the music for that uh mark morgan fallout one and two like oh yeah those games are some of my favorite games and have some of my favorite music as well mm-hmm well, what do you think distinguishes, I guess, a, a normal video game soundtrack from one that works well as a standalone product? Because all of your games are released as soundtracks. I'll queue them up when I'm not playing the game or doing anything related to games. And maybe it's just a matter of quality and it's just as simple as this is a good song and this is not. But maybe it has more to do with what you're talking about, about not 
having things repeat and about varying the styles and that sort of thing that you're bringing to this that is not a component of every game. Yeah, honestly, I really don't know the answer to that. I mean, I know that I tend, I'm pretty sure I have an approach to composing for games that's different from a lot of people's approach Mm. to composing for games in that my background is, you know, I'm a songwriter. That's my background. Yeah. And so I approach every piece the same way I would approach a song for the most part. So structurally speaking, things that I'm writing are very much like just songs that I would make for any context. Right. In a lot of ways. So maybe that has something to do with it. I'm not positive, but I'm writing the pieces to serve the game. But I also am aware of trying to make the pieces interesting in their own right. Interesting enough, at least, for me to enjoy them without any context personally. You know, uh, that sort of a test of a lot of the stuff that I do is just like, do I like it? What can I do to like it to make me like it more, you know, (laughs) that's sort of the most important metric I think for anybody really is, do I like this? How much do I like it? And why don't I like it more than that? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it it almost becomes a problem at times that your soundtracks are so good because there are times when I'm playing particularly a longer game, which Pyre is where I will try to cheat a little. And if it's a game with not a particularly memorable soundtrack or one where the music isn't that big a component of the game, I'll just turn down the volume or mute it or something Mm -hmm. and and I'll sneak in a podcast or or whatever. But I just, I can't do that (laughs) with super giant kids just because a i feel like i am snubbing you or dishonoring the (laughs) the effort that you put into your game and and b because it just like legitimately enhances the experience in a lot of ways and i i feel like i could play it silently but it's not the same so sure uh, thanks and thanks please stop doing that because i I don't have enough time (laughs) to listen to your soundtrack i'm I'm sorry yeah you know (laughs) i honestly though i i wish uh, yeah, I mean, I I feel like for me, the audio is just as important to how somebody can feel about a game yeah. as any other component, the art. I mean, it just, you know, playing with the sound off is like playing with no color, or playing in black and white or something. Right. You know, it's like, it's just the same. For me, it's the same. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, I, there are games where the sound is not as critical to them. I mean, I'll, I'm guilty, certainly, of playing Hearthstone with no sound a bunch mm-hmm. you know or whatever while yeah, I'm something come else or Hearthstone but, come on <laughs> but, but, I, mean, I, I, I enjoy the sound in Hearthstone yeah, yeah yeah that's true yeah the music is very cool it's just to me it, you know it's not the game isn't designed to have that be integral to the experience I don't mm-hmm. think it certainly enhances it when you have it on but um, anyway you know I, I, I just sort of the way we approach our stuff is that sound is as important the music and the sound are as important to the game as any other component of, of the game. Yeah. Well, I actually did mean to ask whether the development ever works the other way around where you're you're kind of trying to tailor the music to what you all have decided that you mm-hmm. want the game to be and you're watching the action and you're trying to mirror it, support it in a certain way. But are there times where it happens in reverse almost where you will write something yeah. that will inspire something in a developer where i don't know a new location a character trait a, a something visual will be influenced by the music that you made yeah i mean i think that to, to some degree that's true i mean for the per, for the first several uh, months of a project i'm just making pieces sort of in a vacuum 
and mm-hmm. everyone can hear them on the team. Everyone is, I'm showing them to everybody. And, and I think they're, you know, that is having an influence on other members of the team, just like I'll see some piece of concept art from Jen and I'll think, Oh, cool. Let me go and do a thing. And, and I think that happens sort of in reverse as well on Bastion. I know that, you know, once I did, well, we, we had planned to have a moment where you discover the, uh, Zia in Bastion and, and had planned to have a moment around that. And I thought it would be cool to have her singing a song when you found her. And, and so we sort of, uh, I know Amir and Greg ended up designing that level a particular way to serve the moment of you hearing the song coming from a source. And, and the way that mm. the level is designed is sort of like a spiral where the song is coming from the very middle and you kind of go around it and the song changes position in the stereo as you progress through the level and, and yeah. you're sort of circling closer and closer and it's getting less and less reverby as you get closer to the source of the sound, you know? So yeah. certainly there are moments that are, are kind of designed around pieces to some degree. Mm-hmm. And narration is such a, a important element of Supergiant games, just in the structure of it, but also in the sound of it. And I, I don't know whether you're involved in that at all, or, uh, yeah, or even I, I am, just yeah. I do the mixing record. too, right? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, yep. just, I yeah, that, yeah. How, how do you handle that? Yeah, it's, uh, well, so yeah, I mean, I'd say my my what I do is divided pretty evenly between sound effects, voiceover recording, and uh, music stuff. So, you know, I spend a lot of time with Logan and on this game, we used quite a few other voice actors as well, mm-hmm. um, just running sessions and, and directing the voiceover sessions. And yeah, it's, it was certainly, uh, it's certainly a lot of fun. And on this project in particular, it was like a really, really big job, <clears throat> more so than on any other project we've done. So yeah, I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, and then the mixing, I, you know, to get the balance of all the components correct, it it sort of depends on what the particular project is asking for. I think it was it's been a slightly different between each game. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in Bastion, it was sort of narration, music, sound effects in terms of the hierarchy. And on Transistor, I would say that music was maybe slightly higher and narration and sound effects were more tied in importance in, uh-huh. in terms of the mix level. And then on this game, it sort of everything is well when the narrator when there is narration it is the loudest thing but for most for the yeah. most part there there isn't uh, as much narration in this game in terms mm-hmm. of it's not constant so you know when there is narration it's the most important thing but then sort of sound effects are more important in in the context of this game uh, actually than a lot of the music is in the mix mm-hmm. Uh, speaking in terms of just relative volume levels. All right. Well, we have kept you long enough that you're losing your own voice. <laughs> so we'll, <laughs> we'll let you go. Yeah, sorry. And, yeah. uh, you can find Darren on Twitter at Darren Korb. You can get all of his soundtracks and you should. And we've played snippets of the songs that he's brought up throughout this interview. They're all excellent. You should listen to the whole thing. You can find them on YouTube too if you want to sample them first. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Darren. Great. Yeah. Thanks again. Okay, so you have been listening to Achievement Oriented, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, which also includes me on the Ringer MLB show and Jason on Binge Mode. We now know how to make good games. We can all just set out to do that for ourselves. And you can find us on Twitter at Achievement Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Achievement Oriented. And we will be back to talk to you next week. As always, catch Jason 
on Talk the Thrones after Game of Thrones. We're planning to talk to the person who does his makeup on an upcoming yeah. episode. She does a great job. You're looking good. Thank you. Well, as long as I'm, I don't look dead inside, then she's doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She also does the, the makeup for esports events and Blizzard That's events right. and Riot events. So we're going to talk to her about that sometime soon. But you can catch Jason. In the meantime, just go to at Ringer on Twitter or Jason's Twitter. And you can find it right there after the episode airs on the East Coast. We will be back with another episode, as usual, next Friday. Talk to you then. Talk to you.